You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 7, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Get going. I want you to do something for me as we begin this morning. I want you to close your eyes. As you close your eyes, I want you to imagine everything that you're used to. Everything about the way you live your life and and run your life, everything you're accustomed to, I want you to imagine that it's taken away from you. You've lost your job, you've lost your health, you've lost your friendships, you've lost whatever family might be near to you. You're more alone than many of you have even felt in the last 12 months. Now, if you can begin to get a sense of that feeling, you're starting to be able to relate to the Apostle Paul. You can open up your eyes if you want. By 67 AD, about the time that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, Paul had lost everything. He's an old man now, and he's all alone. He's losing his health. He's so poor as winter has set in, he doesn't have what he needs to be able to care for himself, a cloak or a covering for himself. Earlier in his life, you might be able to relate, he, he had a very solid career path. I mean, he was moving up to the highest levels of his industry, and then abruptly he made a career change. He switched careers entirely and gave the last half of his life up to this thing, and now... At his age, in 67 AD, the thing that he had given his life to in the second half of his life, that entrepreneurial endeavor, so to speak, it it looks like it might not make it. And he's cut off from any family that he had, from any friends that could find him at this point. And this is his state in life because he's in prison under capital charges. And the death penalty awaits for him. Later in this letter, he's going to tell Timothy that the time for his departure has come. He he knows he's not getting out. Paul's no stranger to prison, but this one's different. He had been in prison before, but but even then, and we'll we'll talk about it in a minute, it, it was kind of under his own accord. He had his own place. People could come and go freely, bringing him what he needed. Friends could be with him. He had a regular audience with their leaders of the day while he was in prison back then. But this, Paul's in what historians will call the Mamertine prison. Quite literally, it was a hole. It was an underground subterranean space that was accessible only by a hole in the floor. And he was there and he was in chains. It was hard to find him where he was. And I want you to imagine that sense that you were even struggling to figure out just a few minutes ago what it would be like to have lost all of it. I want you to imagine now, knowing a bit of the situation that Paul is in, and imagine yourself there where he is, and ask yourself, what would be on your mind? You know you're not getting out of this one. What would be on your mind? I think it would be human to say that at some point, at least for some period of the time, we'd be thinking back over the years that preceded it, and we'd, we'd think about how we actually ended up where we were. How did we actually get here? I think Paul is no different than us in that. 
You see, just 35 years before the day that Paul is sitting in this prison, the world and his life were radically different. 35 years before this winter that Paul finds himself in the Mamertine prison, in that particular spring, 35 years ago, the world was turned upside down. A wandering rabbi from Galilee was publicly crucified for treason, for for stirring up trouble amongst the Jewish religious leaders. Three days later, that wandering rabbi would be raised from the dead. Fifty days after that, as Israel would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost feast, the world was turned upside down as thousands of Israelites became followers of this resurrected rabbi, became part of a movement that was known as the way. Now, for the next 12 to 18 months, the original followers of that rabbi, they went around Jerusalem continuing to preach the news of his resurrection, of his victory, They preached boldly everywhere they went in Jerusalem, and God did miracles wherever they went, and continued thousands were added to their numbers. Oftentimes, they found themselves in prison. But as Dr. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 5, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one is Jesus. Now, as the story went on, one believer in particular, his name was Stephen, he was snatched up by those who continued to oppose the the teaching of the way. No matter how popular it got and how large the following became, there were still those in Jerusalem, in Israel, especially amongst the religious leaders, that absolutely opposed the way. And so they snatched up one of the disciples named Stephen, and they prepared to stone him. And before they prepared to stone him, he spoke boldly. He preached boldly. And he laid out before all of those who had gathered the story of God's redemption. And he called out everybody who was there. And he called them to repent. But Acts 7 tells us, Luke recorded the story for us, that full of rage, everyone there stoned Stephen to death. And in verse 58 of Acts 7, it says, The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul, it says in the very next chapter, approved of the execution. This man, Saul, especially by cultural standards, is a terrible man. I mean, he was brilliant. I mean, he had the best of religious and cultural education and opportunities of his day. He was known to be smarter than all of his contemporaries. But let's just say his cultural upbringing wouldn't get him any party invitations today. He was taught, and every single day, he would wake up, and the first prayer off of his lips would be, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a Greek, a woman, or a slave. Today, someone wakes up and prays that, and they wake up a racist, a chauvinist, and a classist. That was Saul. It's what he had been taught. 
It was the culture in which he lived. And the message of the way, the message of this man Jesus, the message that they were proclaiming was an utter offense to everything that Saul held holy and right. And so in Acts chapter 8, the top of your paragraph there in your Bibles probably says in bold letters, Saul ravages the church. It says he went entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He did this most likely for a number of years. And then Acts chapter 9, it starts off this way. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Saul. And after receiving those letters, it was actually on this trip to Damascus around 37 AD that King Jesus literally knocked arrogant Saul off his donkey and blinded him for three days. This man who sat in every way in his little world on top of the totem pole, King Jesus showed up to him and knocked him flat on his back, left him blind until a follower of the way named Ananias would go and lay his hands on him. And it says, Luke records, that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He rose and was immediately baptized. Now, Ananias, he didn't want to go have anything to do with Saul because he knew of Saul's reputation and all that Saul had done. But God told Ananias, verse 15 of Acts 9, the Lord said to him, you need to go. For he, talking about Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Friends, this was an encounter that would alter all of human history. Not only was Saul the ravager of the church, converted by God's grace, but the risen King Jesus had appeared to him personally making him an an eyewitness of the resurrection. And it wasn't just that the risen king appeared to Saul personally, giving him that eyewitness that he really is alive. King Jesus then commissioned this man, Saul, to be one of his apostles. See, later in Saul's life, he will give his testimony. It's in Acts chapter 26, and This is what he says. He he said of that encounter, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which I have seen, in the things which you have seen me and those in which I appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Literally right there where it says sending you, that's that's ego apostoleo, I, I, I will apostle you. That's what I'm doing. King Jesus looked at Saul that day and said, I am apostling you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This shaped everything about the way Saul understood who he was and his life from that day forward. 
all of his decisions, all of his actions, dare I say everything that he says from this point forward, is shaped by this encounter with King Jesus. He was now an apostle of King Jesus because God chose him to be one. He didn't make himself one. None of the other apostles made him one. No local gathering of the way appointed him as one. God, in his wisdom, according to his purpose and his will, chose this man, Saul, to be his apostle. This was the confidence that drove Saul for the rest of his days. All of his days. Even to the days in which he's sitting in the literal hellhole of a prison in Rome and writes a letter to Timothy and greets him this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Even to his dying day, this man was confident in the providence of God. He truly believed that the same God who conquered his heart on that road 30 plus years before is the same one who has him and is with him in this prison right now. That he has always been and continues to be, even in these circumstances, the one who is in control. This the man we meet as Saul is confident about. He's also certain about his calling, that God had a purpose in this, that he chose me to be his apostle by his will, according to the promise of life in Jesus, he tells Timothy right there in the opening part of the letter. He understood himself to have been commissioned directly by God to preach the good news, the gospel to sinners. And what is that good news in particular right here? It's the promise of life. This is the message that animated and drove his life. The gospel promise of life in Jesus. So much of the rest of the letter we're going to get to in the weeks to come is about this. Life in Jesus now and life in Jesus for all of eternity. See, just in his opening greeting to Timothy, just the first few words at the end of his life, it's just simple shorthand for how Paul understood and lived out his life. He understood himself to, to be an, an apostle of Jesus according to God's will in order that he would proclaim the good news of life in King Jesus. This is what Saul, who we will come to learn and come to know as Paul, did with all of his life. I'm sure he thought back to that day on that road going down to Damascus quite a bit as he sat in this prison. After that day, you can go and, and read in the book of Acts. We'll take a quick sweep through it because I want you to understand a bit of what he might be considering. He, he spent time in Arabia and three years in Damascus and that didn't end so well because they had to let him down from the city wall in a basket to avoid more people who kept trying to kill him. After that, he headed to Jerusalem where he would meet with the apostles. You can imagine, they were a little doubtful about this man's claims. I mean, this is the same guy who had gone from town to town seeking to take captive and bring back to Jerusalem anyone who was a part of the way, going into their house. And now he comes to them and says, I'm one of you. I don't know. 
But there was this man named Barnabas who vouched for him. And from there, you can pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, Paul would preach boldly in Jerusalem. So much so, verse 31 says, that the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. But people still didn't like Paul. And the Hellenists, Luke said, that he would always argue against. They wanted him dead. So the brothers in the church in Jerusalem said, we need to get you out of here. And so they snuck him out of town and they sent him on his way to Tarsus. And at that point forward, Paul, once Saul, is now off to the gospel races. He would join with Barnabas and a man, young guy named John Mark and they would head off to Antioch and what would be known as the first missionary journey. It's in Acts 13. From Antioch, they would go to Cyprus, <clears throat> which is an island about 100 miles off the Syrian coast. Salamis and Paphos, you might remember the story. It was there that Paul would meet a, a Jewish false prophet and sorcerer. He'd preach the gospel to him. The proconsul of the area, <clears throat> excuse me, wanted to hear the word of God directly from this man. So he brought Paul in and Paul preached the gospel to him. Even though this false prophet stood right next to the proconsul and opposed Paul. I love it. It's one of my, my favorite moments in Paul's life. You can go read it in Acts 13. He looked at him and said, you son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And the Lord blinded that false prophet right there. If you've never read Paul's journey, you got to go read it. It's fun. It's full of stuff. But they left there and they went to Perga, which is southern Turkey, and then Antioch and Pisidia, where they preached the God's word and, and crowds continued to come. But Luke tells us that the Jewish leaders continued to be filled with jealousy and they kept contradicting Paul everywhere he went, trying to keep people from listening. So in that point, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark made a switch. They declared to everyone who was listening that they were now turning to the Gentiles. And Luke records that when the Gentiles heard this, he literally says they began rejoicing and many believed. I mean, this was the guy a few years before who woke up every day saying, thank you, Lord, you didn't make me one of them. If he so much as touched one, he had to go through a ritual cleansing to purify himself in his mind. And now, having met King Jesus, he has dedicated the rest of his days to going and preaching the good news of this resurrected king to Gentiles. It's an amazing story. Chapter 14 picks it up. They were driven out of town. And so they went to Iconium and then Lystra. And then when they got to Lystra, they were preaching the gospel. And there was a man, Luke says, who was crippled, who was healed by God. The crowds thought that they were so amazing. They started bringing them offerings and sacrifices, thinking they were descendants of Zeus. And no matter how hard they tried to tell them this wasn't the case, the people just kept doing it. And they kept trying to explain, but they kept bringing it. But... People from Antioch and Iconium had followed Paul and Barnabas and John Mark there and began stirring up trouble. So they took Paul aside and they stoned him right there in Lystra. Thinking he was dead, they drug him outside the city to leave him. It's a big mistake. Somebody should have checked his pulse because he wasn't dead. 
And the very next day, they got up and they headed off with Barnabas to Derbe. And after that, they retraced all their steps backwards back to Antioch in Syria. And when they got there, they hung out for a little while until the church in Antioch sent them to Jerusalem to meet with all the apostles because they were trying to determine Paul's out here preaching the gospel in all these places and all these Gentiles are getting saved. Well, what do we do with all of these Gentiles who are now becoming part of the movement? Do they need to become like us? Do they need to observe all of our cultural history? Do they need to become Israelites of sort in how they live if they're going to become part of this way? And they decided by the grace of God, no, that wasn't the case. And so they wrote a letter that it be sent to all the churches where the gospel is being proclaimed and people are gathering, clarifying these details so that when all of these Hellenists and Israelites would come in and say, well, you can be followers of Jesus, but you have to do this and eat this and not this, they could say, uh-uh, no, we don't. And so Paul and Barnabas left, having met with the, with the apostles with this letter, went back to Antioch, told the good news to the church, and the church then sent them out again to take that good news along with the gospel to the people who hadn't heard. So they decided to go visit the regions that they had been to previously, check in on them, give them the good news. And they had a little disagreement, though. Paul and Barnabas, they, they couldn't agree on John Mark. And so Barnabas went one way with John Mark, and Paul took Silas to go with him now on what's the second missionary journey. And I'm sure that that conversation and that moment was something he thought about while he was sitting in prison. I wonder if all these years later he would think back on it and wonder if he could have done it differently. I don't know, we don't get that detail, but Paul and Silas, they, they go through Syria and, and Cilicia, but they come back to a place named Lystra where they had been before, where the crippled man was, where people thought they were gods, where he was stoned to death, they thought, and drug him out of the city. They go back again to see how the church is doing and to keep preaching. And when they get there, it says in Acts 16.1, there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, whose dad was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers. Timothy's mom and grandmom, Lois, who we'll meet in this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, had become followers of the way on Paul's first journey through Lystra. They had heard the gospel and they had believed. And they had discipled Timothy in the way all these years in between. So much so that by the time Paul and Silas get back to Lystra the second time, the brothers in the church are going, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet this kid. And so Paul, remember who was Saul, asked this boy who's half Jewish, half Greek. I mean, if there was anything in Paul's mind just 10 years earlier, maybe a little worse than just being Greek, it was being half Jewish, half Greek, because somebody had done something they weren't supposed to do. And Paul asked this boy, Timothy, to come and to be with him. And Paul gives his life to him. And this boy gets to go with Paul from this point forward to travel and to preach the good news of this king and the good news of this letter to all the churches. And what an adventure God, through Paul, took Timothy on. If you keep reading in Acts, immediately from that point forward, the Spirit prevents them from going into Asia, so they head to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. But what was that like? The Spirit stopped them. Like, what was that like? Timothy was there for it. 
He was with Paul in Philippi when he witnessed the conversion of Lydia. He was there to witness the con- Paul and Silas being thrown into prison and their miraculous release by the Lord and the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his family. From there, in Acts 17, they, they head from there to Thessalonica where Jewish leaders again got mad and the brothers had to get him out of the city and so they, they sent him to Berea. But when they get to Berea, all the, the Israelites who were mad at Paul follow him there from Thessalonica and it gets so bad that the members of the church there in Thessalonica or in Berea have to have Paul sent away to Athens. But Timothy and Silas stay back in Berea for a little bit, waiting until Paul says, come and meet me. And here's the funny thing. Paul gets sent to Athens because it was unsafe for him in Berea. Timothy and Silas stay. Paul gets to Athens, and Timothy and Silas are waiting for Paul to say, hey, come meet me. And while Paul's in Athens, what does he do? Does he take in the sights of the city? It's an amazing city. It's a beautiful city. Does he take in the sights of the city? No, he's all by himself, and he just decides to take on the wisest in Rome, or excuse me, in Athens. Acts 17. This is Paul and Mars Hill debating the wisest in the land while he waits for his traveling companions to come and meet him. Well, they don't meet him in Athens. Paul eventually gets tired from Athens. They get mad at Paul in Athens, so Paul heads on. He heads off to Corinth where he links up with Priscilla and Aquila. And then Silas and Timothy rejoin him. But while he was there in Corinth, you know what he did? He preached the gospel, he debated those who were against him, and he wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica. That's First and Second Thessalonians. Then all of them take off from there to Ephesus and then Antioch, and Paul hung out for a little while there. But he's restless because God made him an apostle. He knows that there are people around this world that he's not yet seen who have never heard the good news of King Jesus, so Paul doesn't stay there very long. The third missionary journey would begin, and he and Timothy head off to Galatia and Phrygia, and they go back to Ephesus again, chapter 19. And he stays in Ephesus for three years, preaching and teaching and loving these people. While he's there, he writes the first letter to the church in Corinth. He continues to teach and preach and baptize and literally see the gospel turn this city upside down. It was a crazy city. We'll talk more about it next week, but... It was the capital of the, the Roman province there in western Turkey. It was the center for the worship of Artemis or Diana. One of the seven wonders of the world was there, the temple to Artemis. It was the leading center for occult practice and magic there in the region. And Paul preaches the gospel and the city literally gets turned upside down. But while he was there for three years, he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead. He stayed. And these people became very near to his heart. But he finally said goodbye. And when he left Ephesus, he headed to Macedonia. And he traveled with his crew. This is chapter 20. His travels go all over the place. Luke just kind of records from space to space to space. He traveled and ultimately he came to a place called Traus. And while he was preaching there, you might remember the story, chapter 20, a disciple listening to the sermon fell asleep and fell out of a window, broke his neck and died. Paul preached long sermons. Dude fell asleep, but he was raised from the dead. Timothy was right there with him, watching, listening, learning. And they took off and ultimately stopped in a place named Miletus. It was there that Paul would say a final farewell to the elders of the church in Ephesus that he loved so much. And we'll, we'll look at that next week. But 
During that whole adventure there in chapter 20, going all these places, Paul would write his second letter that we have to the church in Corinth, which is actually the fourth letter, and he would write the letter that we're all familiar with to the church in Rome. And after Miletus, he and his crew would travel, they'd make their way to Jerusalem, and what we know of as a third missionary journey would come to an end. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, what do you think Paul does? He walks right up into the synagogues because he was a Pharisee, And because he had the authority as a Pharisee to walk into the synagogue the way he did, and he gets to the synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel. Straight up. But they weren't very happy about it. They got really angry at him. And they beat him within an inch of his life. They drug him off, and he becomes imprisoned in Jerusalem. He's tied up. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, they have a graphically accurate picture of this, portrayal of this, but he's tied up on a a Roman whipping post, about to be flogged for his crime, and right before the first comes down, he appeals to his citizenship, and they hold back. Paul's brought before a series of tribunals, and when he's brought before the Sanhedrin, what do you think he does? He preaches the gospel and calls him out. It gets so heated in the Sanhedrin, they almost get violent with each other and Paul. And so to save Paul, they take him out and they put him in his cell. And his cell in in Jerusalem in this imprisonment isn't like the Mamertine prison. It's his own space. He's not chained up. He's free to move around. He's free to have people. He's free to have stuff. But he's, he's there. He's still imprisoned in Jerusalem. And while he's there, God says, don't worry, Paul you're going to go through this in Rome too. So this will be okay. While he's there in his prison, they continued to a plot to assassinate him. But his nephew caught wind of the assassination attempt and warned Paul and warned the tribune. So Paul ultimately gets sent to Felix, the governor of the region. It's a good story. You should go read it. We can't have time for it. But Felix kept wanting to hear from Paul. They had this interesting back and forth. But Felix kept Paul there in prison for two years. And then there was a regime change, and Festus came in. Felix was out, Festus came in. Paul finally gets his appeal before Caesar. So they put him on a boat. He, and quite possibly Timothy, because he was free to have his associates with him, maybe Silas, maybe Erastus, maybe Tychicus, we don't quite know who was with him yet. Luke doesn't tell us who's there. But they put him on a boat and send him off to Rome, right? Well, that didn't go well. That normal months-long journey may have taken well over a year and a half because a violent storm struck them at sea and they were shipwrecked. They managed to make it ashore to the island they would come to know of as Malta. And when they make it ashore, probably breathing deeply, Paul is bitten bitten by a viper. He doesn't die. Go read the story. Eventually, though, they do make it to Rome. And he spends two years in house arrest there. While there, he writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. He writes the letter to the church in Philippi, Colossians. He writes the letter to Philemon. Back and forth, Timothy would be with him because he was free to have his friends. Paul would eventually, Acts 28, be exonerated for his crime and be set free. That's the end of the book of Acts. Quick journey right there. There you go. But Paul wasn't done. There were more people that needed to hear about Jesus. 
You have to piece together all the things he says in his different letters to to figure out what he did next and how it went. We won't do it even though it would be fun. But we know he made it back to Crete at one point and left Titus there. We know he sent Timothy to care for the church in Ephesus that he loved so much. And we know that he went on back to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. It was there in Macedonia that he would write his first letter back to Timothy when Timothy was in Ephesus. And at some point in all of these journeys after the end of the book of Acts, at some point, we don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain where he wanted to go. We don't really know everything he did. But at some point in all of those journeys, Paul gets arrested again. He's back in Rome, but he's not in house arrest this time. He's in the Mamertine prison. He's in a literal hole. He has nothing, and he has no one. He's old, his health has declined, and Nero's persecution of the church is in full swing. Not only that, he's caught wind in all of his travels of the increasing number of false teachers that are coming into the church. Former friends and colleagues of Paul, they're they're ashamed of him being in prison there. They're turning their back on him. He told Timothy in his first letter, nearly all of Asia almost apostatized. And here he is, sitting in this prison, and he knows he's not going to make it out. What's going to happen? I can't come back. I can't go back to this church. I can't go back to this city. I can't go out and keep doing. What's going to happen to this thing? This is what's on his mind now. He's thought back and how he's gotten there and all that he's seen and all that he's done. And all he knows now is he's in this prison and he can't get out and he's not going to get out. What's going to happen to the church? But he's confident in the same God who had called him. And it's here in this moment and in this prison that he writes his final letter. The letter that we have as 2 Timothy a letter to the man that he called his beloved child. This man who, for the first half of Saul's life, he woke up every day thanking God he wasn't like, whom he had taken under his care, loved, protected, taught, and then trusted him with the church that was nearest and dearest to his heart in Ephesus. There are three words that Paul speaks in the very beginning of this letter that had changed his life, shaped his life. And I honestly believe he he was secure in his heart believing would shape, change, and secure the church for the days coming forward. And it goes like this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Three things, three words. Grace. Go back and read it at some point this week. The very first word of this letter screams grace. What's the first word of the letter? Paul. Paul. He had already told Timothy, first letter he wrote, 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Why would God save me, Timothy? Grace. That in me, the foremost, the chief of sinners, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Tell the church, Timothy, if God's grace is big enough for me, anyone can get in on it. All you have to do is acknowledge that it's God who saves those who have finally come to terms with the fact that they're never going to be able to save themselves. Favorite line, at least in this point in hymns we sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy. All that God requires, all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. It's grace, Timothy. Jonathan Edwards would tell his church often, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. It's grace, Timothy. It's grace, Redemption Hill. Never underestimate it. Never trade it in for a bag of magic beans. Grace is the word we need when we live in a world that says, man, you slip up for a nanosecond. Just a moment. You contradict our set standards and our set rules for a second. You're done. You're done. Canceled. Life, career, over. It's grace, Timothy. Once tasted, continually enjoyed, it frees us to be utterly different from one another. That's what Jesus is talking about when, when he says you've got to forgive each other 70 times seven. Eternally, infinitely, all the time. Grace, when tasted and daily enjoyed, it frees us to be different with each other than the world is. In some sense, when you taste the grace of God and live daily enjoying the grace of God, there's a reality that amongst God's people, it should be true that you can't out the grace of God with his people. This should be one of the safest places on earth for you and I to screw up. Grace, Timothy. When Paul calls Timothy here his beloved child, do you realize that because of grace, that's the very thing that God called Paul on his worst day? His beloved. It's the very thing he calls us. It's grace, Timothy. Grace for the guilty. It's also mercy, though. What's that? There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's mercy. God does not treat you as your sins deserve because his mercy triumphed in his son. I heard one pastor say that the world we live in is so full of negative verdicts. There's no shortage of labels today to stick on people who you say miss the mark. The Pharisee who prayed, thank you, I'm not like these other men, and then called them out. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. Thank you, God, I do everything right. That's just the first century version of the world we live in today. 
label what you see as wrong, cancel them out so that you feel better about yourself. But it's mercy, Timothy. Part of being the church and enjoying the grace and mercy of God is stopping the condemnation. You know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, who said, the Christ in my heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. My heart gets so uncertain, but his word is so sure. Friends, it's, it's part of our responsibility and part of our privilege of being together and being the church to help one another dismantle all the condemning verdicts and all of the shame and and all of the contempt to allow mercy to triumph and shape our lives. And this is what happened to Saul, who we know of as Paul, through how he loved Timothy. We're going to learn through the letter that Timothy was no perfect man. He was probably pretty timid, not very strong. We don't know if maybe his timidity gave way to some of his nerves and physical ailments or if he had separate physical ailments, but he wasn't the guy that you would prop up to lead the most influential church in the region, the one that Paul loved the most, but yet he would look at Timothy over and over again and say, you're capable. I know you don't feel it, but you're capable. Don't ever let them despise you because of your age, Timothy. In a culture that Paul came from, that Timothy was born into, where you were absolutely judged and categorized on the basis of your ethnicity. When that was how the world worked, Paul, the chief of sinners, would remind Timothy over and over again, it's God who's called you. It's God who has appointed you. It's God who has gifted you. Timothy, if you could only see yourself through the eyes of King Jesus, if you could just see you're his, you're his beloved. Grace, Timothy. Mercy, Timothy. And peace. The restoration of harmony to lives spoiled by rift, spoiled by discord. It's reconciliation. D.A. Carson once said, the church is a band of natural enemies who couldn't get along outside of Jesus, who now love each other for Jesus' sake. This is a man in Saul who had made a career of literally looking down on everyone who was not like him. But the powerful peace of God the same peace that tore down the walls of hostility that stood between us and God and us and one another has now made this man Saul, now Paul, a messenger to the Gentiles. And Timothy, with Greek blood pumping through his veins, is quite literally a living fulfillment of God's grace, mercy, and peace through Paul. Friends, we are... The church, those saved by and enjoying the grace, mercy, and peace of God, were meant to be a people and a place who, who celebrate and see the reality that what we share in common is so much more than what we don't. Born and created in the image and likeness of God. 
needy. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Having tasted the grace, mercy, and peace of God and been made now family. In Christ, we have in common the single most important reality in the universe. We have in common something greater than the city we were born in, the college that we went to, the color of our skin, the subculture we affiliate with, the political cause we champion, the job we have, or the hobbies we enjoy. Nothing compares to what we share in Jesus. David Mathis said it this way, brothers and sisters in Christ, we share in common, in the common, unrivaled, single most important reality in all the universe and in all of history. We have God in Christ. Therefore, if you're listening this morning and you've tasted of the grace and mercy and peace of God through his son, do you know the potential that exists in this room? In Jesus There exists the potential in this room for the most significant, the most challenging, the most strengthening, and the most precious of relationships on the planet. But here's the deal. I will never lie to you. I will not promise that you will find them here. These kinds of relationships, like Paul is talking about with Timothy, they're not automatic. They're gifts from God. They're they're cultivated over time. I can't promise that you're going to find it here, but I can promise you this. This is the best place to look for it. It's the best place to try and find it. We have in common something so much greater than anything that's different about us. But he says one last thing, and I'll I'll close it here because we could just go through the whole letter. We have one last thing that he makes clear that we share, and that's simply this. It's a promised future. Remember, facing death, Paul says, uh, we have this promise of life that's in Jesus. Death looks more real to Paul than it ever has before. And in this moment, he clings to the promise of life that he finds in Jesus. He'll say a lot more about this in the letter. In fact, in just nine verses, he's going to say, God has now manifested through the appearing of our Savior the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has defeated the very thing that our world fears the most, and that's death. He emptied death of its power by rising from the dead. That's why Paul would write to the church in Corinth, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And Jesus didn't just abolish or destroy death. He he set it aside and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, you and I live in a world scared to death about mortality. But Jesus has brought immortality. He brought the answer every human is looking for. He took upon himself the death that we deserve for our sin that we might share in the life that he has for all of eternity. Friends, a steady dose of Paul's second letter to Timothy is what we need today. In a world that increasingly finds itself more comfortable ignoring God. Increasingly comfortable living as though this world is all there is. It's one of the greatest deceptions of all time. Through the grace, mercy, and peace of God in Christ, 
we have the promise of life to the full, not just now, but life eternal that swallows up even the best of experiences that we have now. Grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, peace to the distant. These are the blessings that flow from the spring of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. They shaped and they steadied Paul all the way till the day they took him out of that prison, walked him three miles down the road to the edge of the city and took his life. And his faith finally became sight. Paul knew that these were the most necessary components to shape and steady the church when he was gone. They're still the most necessary components for us today until the Lord wills and our faith becomes sight. Grace, mercy, and peace, church. What we share in common through these things in Jesus is greater than anything else. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll begin to respond. Father, we thank you for what you have preserved for us in your word by your spirit. We look forward with anticipation to what you have for us in this letter. May we be strengthened. May we be encouraged. Lord, may we be emboldened to never underestimate to never disregard, to never turn from your grace, your mercy, your peace to us and your son. May it become the thing that is sweet to our lips, sweeter to our heart, steadying us, shaping us, and changing us until the day of your return. Lord, we ask this morning that you would work this in our hearts by your spirit for Jesus' glorious name and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.